Agency tech staffs must, by law and regulation, report cybersecurity breaches. But some industry surveys show that organizations don't always report breaches. Who wants to roll their own head? For some insight on the whole notion of compliance, we turn to the Vice President for Compliance Strategy at Cumulus, Igor Volovich. Mr. Volovich, good to have you on. Good morning, Tom. There have been surveys out by some of the uh, companies, uh, I think Bitdefender, that showed that a large portion of IT executives feel that they are urged by their organizations to not report security breaches and just kind of bury them. What's your sense of whether this even happens in the federal sector or not? Well, I think we've seen some of this recently. We saw the infamous case of Rocketdyne Aerojet that actually had a whistleblower come out and say, well, we were actually told to conceal the fact that we're not compliant. And for a number of years, when they were executing out their federal contract, they were claiming to be compliant with cybersecurity regulations and standards, and they weren't, right? So the rockets flew, the you know the, the company got paid, and uh, yet they were basically non-performing on their federal contract, and the whistleblower exposed it. So there are a couple of ways that this comes to light. Typically, yes, whistleblowers, and the other one, well, you get breached. So yes, you can conceal one breach, but not all of them. And as environments get breached all the time, it's unlikely likely that you can keep that game up forever. Because in the great OPM breach of, what, probably 10 years ago, the director of the agency lost her job over that. And now you hear increasing calls just generally that whoever is responsible for letting a breach happen, then you know they should lose their job. So there's a lot of disincentive for people that may not have a profit motive. And then for companies, contractors, they have the motivation to conceal that from the government because of the costs that it would entail. That's absolutely right. So the personal accountability, it's becoming more and more apparent and transparent. Uh, We've seen a lot of effort by federal agencies to um, enforce the rules a lot better. We've seen regulators come to understand cybersecurity a lot better. And today, we don't have a common model for enforcing things like privacy. We don't have a federal privacy regulation, for instance. So it's kind of a hodgepodge of patchwork of state-based uh, regulations. But again, we're starting to see a light on that. We're starting to see a lot more understanding of how things work. So concealing things in the complexity of cybersecurity is becoming less and less possible. So this idea of plausible deniability, well, oh, shucks, we just didn't know. It was too complex. We had no idea. That's going away day by day, right? We're seeing a lot of that going out the window and the agencies is being asked and and agency leadership being asked to answer these questions. We've seen that in Congress. We've seen that cross the uh, boundary over to the private industry, right? Anybody who's doing federal contracts uh, under the obligation to report continuously and consistently and with integrity. So the ethics of, you know, being able to conceal, can you conceal? Yes, you you still can, of course. You know, if anybody wants to do malfeasance, they they certainly can, right? But uh, the kind of transparency that we're seeing being enforced and being asked for by the federal government and by the agency themselves uh, within their own sphere of influence, uh, it's becoming more and more prevalent. Should an organization, though, fire the top person or the person responsible necessarily if all of the accepted and recommended controls were in place, all of the patching was up to date, they had a program for, you know, continuous diagnostics and mitigation, all of these things. CMMC is coming down the road, in theory anyway, (laughs) starting soon. Is that Perhaps the disincentive that the fact that there has to be a head on a pike uh, for something to happen rather than an honest, well, let's see how we can fix this. Well, I think that's a perfect question, Tom. And uh, we've had this historical model of accountability 
and I'm putting accountability in big air quotes, right? You know, you get breached, the top person gets fired. And you pretty quickly run out of talented folks who want to take the job. And right now we actually have a shortage of willing CISOs who want to take the job, especially in the federal space, right? And it's a tough job to begin with, right? To attracting the right kind of talent when you have the Damocles sword hanging over your head. You know, a lot of things you don't control. There's only so much you can influence within an environment. You have your governance, you have the risk governance, you have your models of exerting influence over the outcomes, but ultimately there's only so much you can do. And also let's understand this. Most federal environments are very complex. They operate in a constant state of change like any IT environments, but also you have these mandates. You know, we have to go in the cloud. For what reason? Well, because we have to be in the cloud, right? Some of these things don't necessarily make sense from a quote-unquote business perspective. That's you, real heresy. You're speaking now. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, look, we're seeing a lot of folks waking up to the fact that we've been pushing for the cloud over a decade now, and some folks are not getting the ROI that they were expecting, right? Some of them are kind of pulling back and saying, look, maybe the fact that we waited and we're kind of these Luddites of cloud adoption is actually a benefit to us now because we have less change, we have less shift, we have fewer things that we have to worry about. Now, everybody's got some cloud, everybody's got some hybrid, everybody's got some level of complexity. And so what I've come to call a persistent level of a fog of war, there's a level of unawareness that is always going to persist. Now, for some environments, they set that bar at maybe 10%. They say, okay, if we don't know 10% about our environment, that's okay. Some say, we just have to accept 30%. And that's our baseline. So there's always something you don't know. Now, the danger is that that is the place where the bad things are going to happen, right? That's where your major non-compliance is going to happen. That's where that field control is going to expose you and expose your entire environment. We are speaking with Igor Volovich, Vice President for Compliance Strategy at Cumulus, an agency's management and the IT staff and plus everybody else. If you add up all of the responsibilities, compliance is a really big word these days, not just in cyber, but cyber joined by so many other compliance requirements on contractors, on agencies, on companies. The companies now have compliance departments and vice presidents of compliance. It seems like there should be a way to automate all of this so that someone is not caught by even well-intentioned lack of disclosure. So the question of compliance, right? We use compliance as the lens to look through, to look and assess our environments and understand our risk posture and our security posture. That's been the historical model. Now, compliance, of course, is in itself complex. There are many regulations. There are many different frameworks. Tom, you mentioned CMMC coming down the pike. You know, we out there in the industry, we see a lot of heads nodding when we talk about CMMC and when I mention it from the stage when I speak at events, but we haven't seen a lot of movement. We don't see a lot of environments in the federal adjacent space moving towards actually adopting CMMC, at least not in a way that would be meaningful, right? And let's remember, CMMC is not a new framework. It's another way to assess under existing frameworks like the state 100, 171, and 172, right? So there's nothing drastically new about CMMC except, well, transparency and accountability, right? So CMMC 2.0 is really meant to solve the problems that CMMC 1 had and really create more integrity in the reporting structure. But let's kind of take a step back and talk more at the macro level. Just compliance as a whole, using compliance as a means of assessing one's integrity, one's resilience, one's standing from a cybersecurity perspective. There's a challenge there, right? Because compliance typically is used as a lagging indicator, not a leading indicator. And we can dig into what that means. All right. Well, what is it a leading indicator of? So it should be a leading indicator of your existing current ongoing security posture, right? But that's not the function that compliance has been built up to be, right? We've always accepted this historical perspective of compliance. And we inherited that from our friends in the financial audit, because that's where we got a lot of those ideas, right? We capture past state. You know, we look at controls, we look at their state, and then we record that. And then at some point, it winds up on some report. And that report gets filed, and then somebody signs off on it. And that's the model. That's the model that's been for decades. Of course, in cybersecurity, things move too fast. 
right? And so you need to know where you are today, not where you were three months ago, or in some cases, three years ago, right? Triannual assessment cycles, that's the common model, especially in federal space. So it's not uncommon for us to speak to a federal client and ask them, what is the oldest piece of information that is on a report that you're holding up in front of us, or you will be holding up in Congress when you have to testify after a certain breach, right? And they go, well, some of this data is three years old. And that's normal. That's common. They will break up their environments in threes and actually do it in thirds because that's only the bandwidth that they've got. So we believe that that's not the way to work. That is not the way to get value out of your compliance program. It's certainly very much within the legal framework and within the acceptable norms of what compliance is today, but it could be better. All right. And so therefore, it becomes a leading edge type of indicator or something that you are in front of before something happens. Correct. Right. So we accept the timeline of real time now in security operations. We wouldn't think of operating with data that's more than a couple of minutes old. We want to be in, I mean, two milliseconds, right? When you look at security operations, when you look at security event management, you're trying to pull these data points in as fast as you can, process them, analyze them, get insights out of them. And so when you look at fusing all that information from your threat intelligence operations, vulnerability management operations, all of that needs to come into that nerve center that we call the SOC, the Security Operations Center. That's where your smart analysts are sitting there and trying to understand what's happening in real time. But we take a full pause and we swivel our chair over to the compliance department and we say, well, what's happening there? And they go, well, this is what happened three months ago or three years ago. Well, what value is that to me as a security operator? There's been this divorce between compliance and security for that reason. We operate on different time scales. And if you are the one that is responsible for the disclosure, if you are up to the minute and you say, gosh, an hour ago, we just had a breach, that's a lot more credibility and probably you look more like you're on the game than if you say, gee whiz, this happened two months ago and the dwell time of this particular software was one month, so we don't know what the heck happened. That's the difference Uh, between the backward look and the forward look. Correct, right, exactly. So with compliance, traditional level of compliance, we, we just capture that past state, right? Nobody's looking at compliance, although ostensibly, right? Let's remember compliance was designed to be a tool of risk management, right? We want to capture state, we want to understand if control has failed, and we want to mitigate it or remediate it, right? Fix that control, make sure it's not failed anymore. And we understand these controls are built on these frameworks that represent a posture that we're trying to achieve. That is our objective state of security for an organization. And it's built on the model of a threat profile, right? So, you know, for a federal environment, you know, NIST 853 represents that kind of threat profile and the controls that would protect you. And same thing across all different industries. CMMC, of course, obviously, that's another good example. But we said that, we said that's what compliance is for, but then we accepted this historical posture. And so when we identify a control failure, it takes months, if not years, to actually fix it. We take this different approach with compliance. We just accept the fact that we're going to be looking backwards. So I call it rear view of mirror security. We're doing things in the past. So there is no value to it, right? So when you talk to a security person, they look at compliance as this thing that we have to, it's a gauntlet, it's a nuisance. It's just this paper, this bureaucratic exercise that really doesn't deliver any value to the security operation or to the security posture of the organization, right? You're always capturing past state. To the question I asked a moment ago then, is there a way to automate compliance? Absolutely. We feel automation is not just something you do for automation's sake. It's not just another box you check, kind of like you check in the box in your compliance program today. Automation is really a way to converge the timelines between security operations and compliance operations. It's really doing for compliance what DevSecOps did for IT, right? It's automating, operationalizing, bringing a lot of these things together, leveraging the resources that you have, and actually creating additional ROI out of your existing security investments. ROI that's sitting there dormant today, 
capturing historical past state, bringing it into the real time now and giving you value for a security program out of your compliance program, bringing them together. And that's what we call convergence. Igor Volovich is vice president for compliance strategy at Cumulus. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for having me on. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your secured device. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped 
influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State. It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness 
towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort I, of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.